Today I will be reading from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Carlin, for reading our passage for today. No passage in Scripture is more admired, and at the same time, more resented. Nowhere is the challenge of Jesus greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the beautiful way more obvious. Nowhere is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. Now, in our day, as we observe the heated debates between intellectuals and academia, the bitter strife between ultra-right-wing patriot militias and far-left-wing anarchists, the animosity of the political arena in Canada and the United States, and the competitiveness of the business and sports worlds, is it possible to follow Jesus' counsel? His words leave us somewhat confused, conflicted, and uneasy. We are to love those who insult us publicly, who make unreasonable requests and treat us unjustly. Is it possible to love those who are trying to harm us in this world seemingly controlled by those getting the upper hand? Are we actually to be perfect as God is perfect? Jesus' words sound strange and unattainable. We are worlds apart from the first century world of Jesus' disciples with digital communication, social media, and our globalized community. But in our everyday lives, the themes of the Sermon on the Mount read like the storyline of most Hollywood blockbusters. Lust, adultery, divorce, fraud, murder, hate, anger, and revenge. They are our themes. Today we are as in need of Jesus' instruction and guidance as his first disciples were. Whenever we receive Jesus' words to us, the kingdom of heaven invades with transformational power. But too often, we view his instruction in these verses as idealistic, detached, naive. Questions linger. Does Jesus know the way things work in this world? Are his words uh, trustworthy and practical? We know Jesus is, is good and compassionate and insightful, but is he smart? Does he perceive something we don't see? So let's unpack this text a bit. First, let's set Jesus' words in context. He begins his Sermon on the Mount by describing the character of his disciples. They are poor in spirit mourn their sinfulness, are gentle, hunger and thirst after righteousness, are pure in heart, 
peacemakers, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Disciples who have this kind of character influence their world as as salt and light. Even a pinch of salt and a small lamp can have a great impact. Then Jesus articulates his relationship to the Hebrew scriptures. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In fact, everything in the Hebrew scriptures points to him. To illustrate how this works itself out in daily life, he provides six antitheses. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus doesn't annul the law. Rather, he provides the intended deeper meaning of the Hebrew scriptures. Here is the fifth of six. Uh, Chapter five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The Ten Commandments are found in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. In chapters 21 to 23 of Exodus, those commandments are applied to daily life. The context for our eye for an eye phrase is that of a a pregnant woman being harmed. In fact, we read in that text, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now that's a lot of pain. But the law was put in place to curb evil. This law was not given to encourage revenge, but to deter personal revenge protect those being harmed, guide civil authorities when exercising justice, check inappropriate punishment, and terminate vendettas, those family feuds which only seem to escalate. The law was like a a dam against the river of violence which flows from the evil of the human heart. Even the Hebrew scriptures taught this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19 verse 18. Unfortunately, a law made to limit retaliation and ensure justice was being used to justify personal revenge. Why? The Jews were under Roman occupying forces. The Jews were at the mercy of the Romans everywhere on the street, in the courts, in the presence of the military occupying forces, and in the everyday world of financial need. Those who were harmed wanted to strike back, especially when there was no justice system to protect them. Personal retaliation through violent resistance was a burning issue in Jesus' day. There were popular resistance movements throughout the land at that time. What does Jesus say? Verse 39 But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Notice that Jesus calls the person as evil. He's not out of touch. Because he understands evil, he speaks the way he does. He does not condone evil behavior. And he knows how difficult it will be for his disciples to hear his words. So he uses four vivid illustrations from their everyday lives to emphasize how they can serve those who offend them. An act of contempt, 
a miscarriage of justice, military abuse, and discipleship in daily, unheroic situations. First, an act of contempt. Verse 39, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It pictures a backhanded slap, a right-handed person using the back of the hand to slap someone on the right cheek in public. Roman military personnel humiliated the Jews in this way. The slap would not only be a painful blow, but a gross insult. You can hear Jesus' followers responding, What? Are we to be completely passive? Isn't this just an excuse for cowardice? Wouldn't that encourage passive-aggressive behavior? We take the slap in the first moment of offense, but then wait for an opportunity to stab the person in the back when he or she is not present. Jesus says his disciples' first responsibility is to reverse the dynamic of these relationships. The evil person attempts to take, but they are instead to give to the offender. Rather than thinking about retaliation first, they are to remember the path of the beautiful way. And what is that way? If someone insults them with a slap, they are to respond with an act of love. Returning a slap to their offender would only lead to escalating violence. If they are secure in their identity as disciples of Jesus, they will have no need to retaliate with more evil. So Jesus' words do not prohibit self-defense in the case of a more serious assault. They do not prohibit fleeing from an evil situation or resisting a violent attack that would lead to even more serious abuse. Both Jesus and Paul flee dangerous, abusive situations. Jesus does not argue against the, the justice system in these verses. He does not prohibit the use of force by governments or the police when combating evil. No, Evil and injustice must be checked. Rather, he's focused on personal conduct. His disciples are to reject the human tendency to seek personal revenge when wrong, to get back at those who hurt us, to prove that we are strong, and not only strong, but superior to the one who has wronged us. The second scene is a court scene. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well, verse 40. The tunic was a long-sleeved inner garment worn under the cloak next to the skin. The cloak was an outer robe. The cloak was used by the poor for a sleeping cover. Under the law of Moses, it was their right to keep their cloak and tunic. So what is Jesus saying? Are they to walk around naked? Verse 40 is clearly hyperbolic. No first century Jew would go home wearing only a loincloth. What are you doing in your underwear? Ah, I just lost the debate in court. No. Again, the disciples are to reverse the dynamic of the relationship by giving to the person who is unfairly taking their most basic necessities. The third scene is a military scene. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, verse 41. Roman soldiers often forced the Jews to carry their luggage. The most familiar scene in scripture is that of Simon of Cyrene, forced by the Roman guards to carry Jesus' cross. 
These demands would naturally evoke outrage, a desire for vengeance. By going the second mile, the disciples are to reverse the dynamic of the relationship. The second mile would be an an extended opportunity for Jesus' disciples to answer the Roman soldiers' questions. Tell me, why are you doing this? The fourth scene is of one's personal relationship with the poor. Uh, Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. (laughs) These are wild images of generosity. Any rational Jew would struggle with this statement. Michael Wilkins, a commentator, writes, the one begging may not be poor legitimately or may not require charity, but give to him anyway. The one seeking a loan could be unscrupulous or even one's enemy and may not intend to repay the loan, but don't turn her away. With these sayings, Jesus removes the obligation of judging the merit of the request for charity or the loan. Wow. His disciples are to practice a radical generosity. There is nothing passive in Jesus' illustrations. As his followers, we are to go on the offensive and change the dynamics of these encounters. We are to go beyond the request and engage the person in relationship. Offer the other cheek. Offer the cloak. Go the second mile. Offer a generous gift. Our first obligation is not to retaliate for the wrong done or to protect ourselves and our personal interests, but to serve those around us, even those who don't seem to deserve our loving service. These sayings made their first hearers uneasy and make us uneasy. We quickly go to other passages in Scripture which instruct us to help those who are truly in need but do not require us to give foolishly or to a lazy person who is not in need or to give where giving would harm uh, rather than benefit. Let's be careful not to miss the intended impact of Jesus' words. As his followers, we are to turn injustice into an opportunity for loving service. That's his point. Jesus himself lived out this radical love principle and became a a vivid example for us. His disciple, Peter, writes, this is in 1 Peter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself for us when we were his enemies. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. And then verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And this gospel reality leads Jesus' disciples to follow Paul's practical instructions. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12. When we follow the beautiful way of Jesus, we are no longer under the order of our oppressor or offender. We are under Jesus, our Savior and Lord, who executes justice. Within the oppressive, unjust context of his first century disciples, Jesus focuses on heart attitude. The only limit to his followers' response in unjust situations is what love and the scriptures impose. They are to be so secure in their new identity in him, in Jesus, that when they are wronged, they use every opportunity to serve others, wooing others to Jesus and his kingdom. Do we need to turn injustices experienced into opportunities to serve? When I asked myself this question, I immediately thought of a person who had insulted me, taken opportunities from me, and from my perspective, run over me. Jesus wants me to reach out to that person. Does someone come to mind for you? Jesus talks about the law, what the law points to. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a time when God would write his law on the hearts of his people. Not only would they be forgiven, but they would be obedient to God, desiring to be like God. It would spring from their hearts. That's in Jeremiah 31. In Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise takes place. With his arrival, the kingdom of heaven has come. Something new has arrived. Jesus continues to build on his love principle in verse 43 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Hebrew scriptures never said that one should hate his or her enemy. In fact, the context of the command, love your neighbor, in the book of Leviticus, demanded the same depth of love for foreigners and resident aliens in the land. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, directed God's people to assist even an enemy in need. Therefore, Jesus' words in chapter 5, verse 43, seem to reflect more a popular widespread saying of his day. Jesus is confronting a misinterpretation of the Hebrew scriptures here. Groups within Israel were identifying neighbor exclusively as those within their Jewish community, people of the same race and religion, and the evildoer as those outside of their community, the Gentiles, and therefore gods and their enemies. We see this kind of thinking being played out in North America today. 
where people of a different worldview or political persuasion are shamed, vilified, and canceled. And it is most sobering when those who identify themselves as Christians act this way and do it in the name of God. God hates evil, but he never commands his people to hate their enemies. What does Jesus say? Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' saying is a radical saying. To drive home his point, Jesus refers to two despised groups, tax collectors and Gentiles. Tax collectors were hated representatives of the Roman governing authorities, compromised by corruption schemes. They were despised by the people because they were viewed as traitors, guilty of raising taxes for the enslaving power. But Jesus says, even these tax collectors love those who love them, at least their mothers and other tax collectors. And the Gentiles, those considered to be pagans, even they greet people from their own tribe. They all care for their own. God does not look at humanity according to the groupings we humans create. He transcends human boundary markers. He loves all people without distinction, even those who have rejected him. All of his creatures are his own. God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He shows repeated and prolonged favor on all people. He desires that sinners and tax collectors, Roman soldiers and pagans, that they all become his children. As Jesus, uh, disciple Peter, would later write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is the kind of love Jesus is advocating for his followers. The real direction of the law is to love with a rich, costly love extended even to enemies. Jesus' life defines agape love for us. John Stott, a commentator, writes, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Jesus lived his radical love principle right to the end. You know, enemies come in many forms work colleagues, government officials, prosecutors, family members, all are to be loved. Love will lead us to pray for them, to pray for the Father to heal, restore, and bless them. 
To be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to align ourselves with the prophets. To bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align ourselves with God himself, his character. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. And the more prayer, the more love. The more love, the more prayer. We live as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven when we live according to the beautiful way of Jesus, when we respond to evil as God does. Jesus' love is deliberate, generous, wildly generous, warm, self-sacrificing. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. When we love our enemies, we make explicit our relationship with the Father. We then resemble, truly resemble, the family likeness. I remember sitting with a missionary medical doctor on another continent in a very, very impoverished setting. His work was being attacked, misconstrued by local authorities. I asked him, why do you keep on giving and loving when you are mistreated and publicly humiliated? I will never forget his response. He said, and I quote, there is a love for others which loves because it receives gratitude and appreciation for the good done. Then there is a love which loves even when it receives nothing in return. And then there is a love for others which receives rejection and disdain in return for the good done, but then goes away. And then there is a love for others which receives rejection and disdain for the good done, but keeps on loving. Jesus invites us to embrace the fourth level of love. End of quote. We love not because of our immense capacity to love others, but because God first loved us. And he's made a change in our hearts. That change, it, it compels us to love. We love imperfect people to lead each relationship to God's intended purpose. We are always asking ourselves what God wants for each relationship, and then we join God in what he desires to do. So turn your heart toward God's heart for each relationship. The way of the culture of earth is based on an eye for an eye, seeking revenge and, in good relationships, returning favors. The way of the culture of heaven is based on self-giving love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. To return evil for good is demonic. We are then guilty of pure weakness. To return evil for evil is legalism. We're merely an echo. To return good for evil is Jesus-like. We live in the power of the Spirit. We live by a higher ethic. With transformed hearts, we love the world of sinners for whom Jesus gave his life. Jesus, he ends this section of six antitheses with a summary statement. We find it in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does that mean? Is Jesus not setting up an impossible standard? For those of us who have a perfectionist tendency or come from a culture which 
places high value on perfection. Are we to continually live in a depressed state? Is this a standard we will just never reach? Have we been set up for the impossible? We can become very uneasy before just the magnitude of this statement. Is there any realism here? Let's unpack this statement. The word perfect in scripture refers to spiritual maturity, wholeness, completeness. Jesus' statement sets out the goal that is to shape the disciples' entire life. The spiritual rebirth of his disciples and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives makes possible and real their transformation into God's image. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate example to follow because he is the perfect image of the Father. We pursue this goal with a, a restful dissatisfaction, a holy discontent until our final perfection at Jesus' return. We are content, yes, with what Jesus has done in our lives and with the growth that has occurred. We know we are loved and accepted by the Father we're not struggling to measure up and merit salvation. Yet at the same time, we desire to move on. We hunger and thirst after the righteousness out outlined in the Sermon on the Mount because of the deep satisfaction we have experienced in Jesus. We want to mature, become more like Jesus, and we rest in the promise that ultimately we will be like him. As John, his disciple, wrote, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And the goal we live for comes with a promise. And I'm sure of this, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Father will enable his sons and daughters to get there. Jesus saying it, it's a command, it's a, a promise, and a statement of unrelenting hope. So turn your personal dissatisfaction into a longing to be like Jesus, because that is your future. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' life and ministry comes with extraordinary power. Not the power of a mighty military force, but the power to fulfill the law and the prophets with a, a heart transformed. Disciples of Jesus do not just comply with outward religiosity and legalistic demands. No. They love God and all people from the heart. They are transformed by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus. The author of the book of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then a little later in the same chapter, he describes those witnesses who have gone before us as the spirits of the righteous made perfect through Jesus. That's verse 23. This is the sure hope of every 
Jesus follower. So let's live with that unrelenting hope. Amen. Father, we thank you again for calling us to yourself. Jesus, we thank you that you have gone before us. We thank you for the example you have provided. And you not only provide an example, you have sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us, to lead us and enable us to do what you have called us to do. Thank you for the transformation that we have experienced. Thank you that you will complete your work in us. We can trust you. You are faithful even when we're not. And so, Lord, may we not despair, but may we live with hope and live, Lord, your words to us in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Some questions will be posted for your reflection. Please take some time to apply Jesus' words to your life.